0: All right. Hi, welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Serenia Nantapantla, and I have Dr. Laura uh, Gertin with me today. Um, Thank you so much for coming to my podcast, uh, Dr. G. Um, Absolutely. I'm really happy to be here. Glad to hear. So let's just get started. Um, Could you elaborate more on who you are, where you're from, and what work you're doing?
1: Sure. So... As you've already introduced me and my name is Dr. Laura Garten, I am a Distinguished Professor of Earth Sciences at Penn State Brandywine. So I teach in Media, Pennsylvania, I live in Media, Pennsylvania, originally from Massachusetts though in Connecticut and went to school in Pennsylvania and Florida and I've lived and taught in Virginia and Colorado so I've been to quite a few different places but I've been at Penn State now for 20 years and I really love my job. And love teaching there.
0: Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I also live in Pennsylvania, so go Pennsylvania.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So um, to get started with um, some of the education things that you're working on, um, so could you
1: tell me more about like the outreach you're doing in your community? Because I know you do a lot. Right. So my uh, undergraduate degrees in geology and my PhDs in marine geology and geophysics and when you go through education, you're trained very well in your discipline, how to talk to other people in your discipline. Mm -hmm. So I've been trained to communicate science to scientists. I publish in science journals, but being in the classroom and teaching introductory level earth science and geoscience courses for non-science majors, it's a very different communication approach. Mm -hmm. I, I view teaching as a communication style in a way. And so I'm always looking for new and innovative ways to engage audiences that are not scientists, because science is important in everyone's life, in just the function of our planet overall. Everyone lives on this planet and is making decisions about where they're going to live or what they're going to purchase. And so everyone's actions impact the environment. And I really want to find ways to get others to not be afraid of science, uh, to help understand it and see the relevance of science to their own lives. And so I really have a passion for getting involved in community outreach events, whether that being giving a talk at the Delaware County Institute of Science or working with the Start Talking Science program. They're having an upcoming event at the Science History Institute or going in Zoom or and not just talking but also finding other creative ways to to share science to kind of bring people into the conversation.
0: Yeah for sure like your art which we will get to in just a moment but I have a question on um, like what are examples of some of the methods you use to communicate with students cuz or 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 not not just students right students can mean a lot of people they can be people like my age like who are just coming to college or or people who are like adults and want to learn about the like science behind stuff
1: Well everyone's a student and I tell my students that I'm a student too I don't know I may have the fancy letters after my name and the diploma on the wall but our planet is always changing and there's always new things to learn and to uh, discover and then to apply and, and, and think about the relevance of it. So to, to, Connect with all audiences, no matter what their age. The first thing is to never, never, never start with the numbers. Don't start with the data. Don't start with the graphs, because that can turn people off immediately. If you get too technical right away, then there's their eyes get glassy or there they just disconnect and unplug. So one of the ways is just to find something that is relevant to them, something that can connect with them, something that is in the local geographic area or something think that's going on in the news right now. Mm-hmm. I actually like to use sports a lot uh, yeah. to connect because uh, my at my campus, the majority of my students are from southeastern Pennsylvania. So Philadelphia Eagles are starting their season at the time <laughs> we're having this conversation. Philadelphia 76ers were in the playoffs. And if there's a way to bring in what's happening locally in the community and and tying in some connections there, uh, you know, get getting my audience hooked into the topic and then slowly bring in using non-jargon terms, uh, mm. again, really helping them understand not just the what of what's going on on our planet, but why it matters.
0: Yeah, exactly. That, that's a great connection and a great tie-in. I never would have thought sports and earth science could be connected like that. That's very cool. <laughs> so I saw like in on your study on um, like student-created audio storytelling, I thought that was very cool. And, and you said it improved their connection to earth science. So can you explain like the motivation behind the study and and how was like data collected for this study? Because this is very interesting.
1: Yes. Yeah, so it's it's been known in pedagogical circles that one of the best ways for students to learn the information is to be able to repeat it. So it just reinforces the knowledge of what they learn instead of just writing notes in a notebook and then taking a multiple choice exam. So if there's a way to get students to then share what they've learned, it really helps of their knowledge and audio exercises. I've actually been doing with students for over a decade. And it turned out when I was at a conference several years ago, I found a, a geoscience colleague at Kutztown University who was also doing audio assignments with her students. And we found another colleague at MIT that was doing audio assignments with his students. And so we came together and we wrote a grant proposal to the National Science Foundation to do some research on it because we had seen our students get excited and get creative in our introductory level geology courses for non geology majors. And, yeah. but the question is even though the students were getting excited, was there actual learning going on? Was it making a difference for the student to be able to do this type of assignment versus just something that would be done on paper or just a PowerPoint presentation? And so, we worked with faculty from multiple institutions. We brought them together. We trained them on how to develop assignments involving audio and how to make sure that it was not overly technical because you don't wanna to go too far down the road of making it about the technology and not about the content. You, right. They students you. still need to learn the content. Mm-hmm. And also really emphasizing the process of creating that audio, creating a story versus the end product. Again, this is an intro level class where the emphasis is on learning the geoscience content. uh, And so the Key is to get students engaged and excited. They're not producing something that's going to go on the radio in the end. Although at Cutstown University, some of the students did have it appear on their campus radio station, some of their audio files that they did. Oh wow. So it was about getting involved in training students on storytelling, not writing scientific reports, because if they're not going to be a science major, having them Write a report that has the introduction and the methods and the results and discussion. We know that format, and that's great if you're going to be a future scientist. Is not helpful <laughs> if I want my students to then go and talk about science. So right. we had we trained faculty who then brought the the teaching technique of using audio into their classrooms. Uh, the project was called SPAN, Student Produced Audio Narratives, mm-hmm. and what we found in trying to see. Uh, If there was a change in student perception about their learning environment and their attitudes towards science, yay, that's actually what we did find, especially in the areas of personal relevance, by having students create their story on a topic relating to the class, students uh, statistically showed Uh, increase in personal relevance, uh, sense of curricular innovation and future intentions to study some more science, maybe not majoring in it, but taking additional science courses. So that's, you know, that's what we can hope for in an intro level class is uh, getting students more connected to the material. And then that way they're literally finding their own voice. So they've been trained in how to tell a story about geoscience and now they can go on and continue doing that have the confidence that they can accomplish that.
0: That's a very beautiful experience for all the students I'm sure and like have you been incorporating audio-based
1: learning um, in the rest of your classes from then on? I have. And I've chosen different uh, variations and different themes. So for example, this semester, I'm teaching a course on climate change. Again, another introductory level course for non-science majors. And I'm having the students generate, uh, I'm calling it voicemails about climate science. So they're pretending that they're calling a friend or a family member, and they're leaving a message about a particular climate-related topic. So it has to be based, though, in factual information, something that they've read about. And so I really emphasize also teaching students about current events and information literacy. Mm -hmm. And so they weave all of that into uh, pretending that they've called someone and they're leaving them a voicemail to explain something relating to climate science. Again, another way, instead of having students type up a paper, they're telling a story about climate in this voicemail assignment.
0: Oh yeah. And then, and then like they can, that that's also how they get the connection. Like you mentioned earlier, right? Like you can, if you have like Absolutely. A living in Florida or something, there's sea level rise, which you can talk about. And there's yep. so, many, so many connections there. Yeah. Climate change has many, many impacts. So yes. There's so much to choose from. So like in your intro classes, what kinds of students are there?
1: Is it like engineering students? Uh, what kind of non-science majors are usually it- there? It's everyone. It's right. students that are pursuing degrees in history or IT or business. So all of the courses that I teach at Penn State satisfy what's called a general education requirement. So all universities have um, a general education program where students are required to take so many classes that fall underneath an arts and humanities category or of course X number of courses under the social science category. Mm -hmm. My courses all fall underneath the science category. And and I really, really enjoy teaching these inter-level courses for non-STEM majors. And yes, even some STEM majors do sign up for it as well, just to learn some of this content and to be introduced to these uh, different pedagogical techniques I use in the classroom.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, Now, uh another another technique that I've seen you use in also one of your publications is how you turn an Earth Science Week into a campus-wide uh, uh, photograph competition. So how'd you get the idea to do that, um, and what was the result of it? Did students like it?
1: So Earth Science Week, it's a thing. It, it's something mm-hmm. that is celebrated not just in the U.S., but internationally, and it's been going on, my goodness, I think for at least 15 years or so, and it's organized by the American Geosciences Institute, and Each week in October, there's a week in October where geoscientists really emphasize the planetary connections, society and science connections relating to Earth. And several years ago, they started doing writing contests and photography contests relating to whatever the theme is for Earth Science Week that year. And several years ago, I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun if we actually did that on our campus at Penn State Brandywine. Mm -hmm. I am the only geoscientist at my campus. So, uh, So I wanted to find a way to really elevate my discipline across the entire campus and to get people involved and the wonderful part about having a photography contest is that everyone has a cell phone or a way to take a photo. Even if a student didn't have a cell phone, we have cameras in our campus library that students could check out and go around campus and take a photo if they wanted to. So I work with Matt Bodak, who's the instructional design specialist at my campus. And he's been great because we also help students not just think about the planet and their connections and tying in the theme. So I kind of bring the science part of this, photo contest, he brings in the technology part because at Penn State, all students have access to the Adobe Creative Cloud. So the entire suite of Adobe software, students have access to for free. And many students don't realize that or they don't tap into it. Mm -hmm. And so we have two different versions of the contest. One version is for students to take a photo, but then they have to use an Adobe product to alter or enhance that photo or add a caption or add Uh, some kind of clip art to it Uh and then if we have uh, because we know some faculty and staff maybe don't want to use the software they think they've got this great photo that they've already taken so we have a photo contest and a photo display that goes on at the same time but we really want to help students tap into all the resources that are offered at our institution and it's great that i can tap into the technology and also infuse some geoscience knowledge at the same time
0: yeah that's super cool it's definitely like an interdisciplinary event you've got you've got science the technology and the like um it's it's like the art part too so steam actually and that yes. that wonderfully transitions into your quilting um and how you incorporate like art science and um possibly engineering um into how you make your quilts and and your, um, and crocheting. So how long have you been doing that for?
1: Yes, yeah, so with my crocheting, it's, it's a funny story. So I started crocheting, I learned how to crochet when I was in junior Girl Scouts, probably in about the fifth grade. And that was one of the badges that you could earn. And so through my Girl Scout troop, I learned how to make a pot holder. And it was not a very good pot holder, but it was sort of square, but not really. And then I didn't do any, I never crocheted after that until I got to graduate school. So my last year of graduate school, as it is for everyone else, it was so stressful. So mm-hmm. you're trying to write those last chapters of your dissertation and you're trying to work on revisions and thinking about what's next, you know, you can't go to school anymore. So now it's time to get the job and where are you gonna work and applying for positions. And the stress level was so high that I was trying to find a way to just decompress and have some sort of hobby that could I could step away from just doing the writing and being in front of the computer all the time. So there was a local Michael's Arts and Crafts store. And I remember going there and just walking up and down the aisles looking for something to do. And so I tried paint by number and that didn't work. (laughs) And then I found uh, they have of course, this enormous aisle filled with yarn. They have multiple aisles filled with yarn. And I remember walking up and down and seeing the crochet hooks. And I'm like, you know, I I did this a long time ago. I wonder if I could figure out how to do it again. And so I bought some yarn, I bought a hook. And by the time I defended my dissertation, I had a whole scarf that I had created. (laughs) And so that actually set me back on my pathway of using crocheting as a way to balance being a scientist, but also making sure I have the opportunity to disconnect and re-energize at the same time. And then that shifted into crocheting scientific data of all things. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so I don't know if you've heard of the temperature blankets that some people do. Mm-hmm. So where right, so. Uh, where people will record, most people will record the daily maximum temperature, Uh, For an entire year for wherever they're located and each row in the blanket represents a color that is assigned to a 10 degree temperature interval, let's say, and so you at the end of the year have a 365 row blanket where each row is a color representing what the temperature was. I've seen people though also do that with air quality, with precipitation data, Mm -hmm. uh, all different, uh, any data that has some kind of time series or sequence, you could actually put, you could knit, you could crochet, uh, quilts is also another way to do it too. And so I have crocheted for a while. And then back in 2006, I was given my grandmother's sewing machine. Uh, her and I both shared a passion for crocheting and would share our crocheting projects a lot. Uh, but when she when she passed on, I was given her sewing machine and I said, you know, I really need to do something with this machine. I couldn't just let it sit there. And sewing I had not done since the seventh or eighth grade <laughs> because I hadn't had a sewing machine. So. I went to the local Joanne fabric store. They were having a quilting class. And so I completed my first quilt in 2006. Uh, I've, I've now done 84 quilts over the years. Wow. Uh, in the beginning, I was quilting blankets that I would donate to, to friends or charities, give them as gifts to people. And then my brain went back to the, well, I can crochet science data what can i do to quilt and i actually then combine my passion for storytelling communicating to non scientists and using the quilts and so i do what i call quilting science stories i use quilts as a science communication tool to really again help people learn and engage more with what's going on on the planet
0: yeah so so interesting i've um it's so cool like you can literally take um uh, any any time series data and just I never thought quilting or crocheting would be a, a graphical representation of data ever before now so that's that's definitely another beautiful way of sharing um like you said your like your um wants to tell stories and also your passion for science
1: Yeah, I think we need to, and by we, I mean educators overall. Mm -hmm. I really wish the structure of our system was a little different where we didn't have students taking a history class over here and an English class over here, and then your chemistry class is over here. Uh, Everything is taught in silos, and it's so discipline-focused. And Mm -hmm. the way the world works is we are interdisciplinary. All of Earth's systems are intersected and work working together so mm-hmm. you can study geology but you really also need to understand policy and government mm-hmm. and you need to understand communication so there's just so many pieces that come together and then that art piece is just a wonderful way again to help with the mm-hmm. communication with visualizing what's going on in the environment from the past present and future mm-hmm. so it, it's I don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to change and transform all of higher education, but if I can get my students to really see, again, with the, the audio narratives, getting them to understand why communication of science is so important, the quilts, how we can combine art and science together too.
0: Yeah, maybe even like, I know in my high school, there's, there's the science classes in this area, then you have to go all the way across to get to the math classes, and then the English classes are all together, everything's like grouped together, but even maybe if we like move the classrooms a bit, maybe randomize where they are, you can have some mixing between disciplines,
1: right? I actually had, we have a math club on my campus and I actually had the math club help me design one of my quilts. Uh, Quilting is actually very analytical. I do a lot of quilts where I don't follow patterns. I make up my own pattern because there's a story I want to tell in a quilt. And so I use very specific fabrics and the way I lay them out. And I had one particular fabric that I only had so much of it. And I really wanted to use it, but I didn't want to cut it up and then find out if I was going to run out <laughs> there was no way for me to get more of it. So I worked with the math club and said, this is my design. And I taught them a little bit about seam allowance. So when you sew, you lose a little bit anyway. And they spent two of their club meetings actually drawing and, and trying to figure out if I had enough of this one particular fabric to create the quilt. I wanted a quilt. And that was just so much fun. Did you have enough quilt for it? Did you have enough yarn for it? I did. I had enough fabric, and I was able to make the quilt thanks to it, <laughs> and I felt better about it, too, before I started cutting. <laughs> awesome. Wow, that's
0: a, that's a wonderful way to get this, like the math students to apply their knowledge to, like, an actual physical problem, and it mm-hmm. worked out in the end, which is very cool. Yes, even better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you didn't find out too late. <laughs> um. Just like moving a little bit towards your um, geoscience um, background, so I I read that you came back, you just came back from a two month uh, ocean expedition,
1: so can you describe that experience, because that seems like a wonderful time. It was incredible. Yes. So again, my training is in marine geology and geophysics. And part of my graduate work was looking at continuous cores that were drilled in the Florida Keys and Everglades National Park. So they were rock and sediment cores. And I was describing the sediments that were in there. I was looking at the mineral changes and really trying to understand what have the changes in sea level done to the Florida platform over the past 30 million years. Mm -hmm. Florida, especially if you've been to South Florida, you know, it's very flat. So any change in sea level is going to alter a significant part of the landscape down there. So I was looking at those changes over time. And the ship that I was just on for two months, it's called Joydi's Resolution. It's a scientific ocean drilling ship where it is collecting sediment and rock cores from the deep ocean. So we actually went to, we left out of Cape Town, South Africa Mm -hmm. on April 7th and spent two months on the water. We went out to the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean where we have the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. That's the divergent plate boundary that is an underwater volcanic mountain chain that's generating that new crustal material. Mm-hmm. And the crust is younger towards that divergent boundary and it gets older as it moves further away. And we were trying to understand, we know rocks get older with time, yeah. but we don't know how they age. We don't know exactly the changes that are going on with the minerals. We don't know exactly the impact of the fluids, these superheated hydrothermal fluids that are circulating through the rocks and the sediment and the water. And what, chi- what impact does that have on the timing and the duration of the changes within those basalts that have formed on the seafloor. So we were trying to understand that. And the other primary objective we had, which was super exciting too, was looking at the microbiology in there. So we're learning more and more that microbial organisms don't just live in the water. They don't just live in the sediment, they're living in the rocks too. And- what happens to those microbial creatures also over time as that superheated hydrothermal fluid is moving through them. So we were trying to understand the changes in the composition of those microbial assemblages as you get further away from the divergent boundary. We're looking at how the rocks change as you get further away. And one of the reasons we're really excited about studying at this particular location, one for me, it was such a thrill to to be on this particular expedition because we went to the site where they had collected the very first samples to prove the theory of plate tectonics, wow. which happened... Yep, back in 1968, and it's the founding theory of my discipline. <laughs> it's yeah. really transformed how we understand the Earth. So that was collected by a different scientific drill ship, the glowmar Challenger, and it was the third expedition that ship had ever been on. And so we went back to that same geographic location, but now we've got better equipment to collect material. We've got more sophisticated research questions we're asking, and the application of what we learn now I think is going to be super exciting, because when you think of what NASA's doing right now. All right, NASA's looking for life on other planets. And they know to to look for these small early life forms. It's going to be something that again will probably be microbial. Mm-hmm. It's going to be on what the these oceans are on these exoplanets, you know, not the same as Earth's oceans, but there's probably something small and What we need is a better what we call planetary analog we what we do is a lot of times we study earth the processes on earth the features that we see on planet earth and then we apply that to what we see on other planets to understand what's happening on those planets volcanoes on mars right Mm -hmm. (laughs) the grand canyon of mars trying to understand how do we know water once flowed on mars well we we look at earth and we look at the features on our own planet Mm -hmm. so If we can understand better what's happening at the bottom of our own ocean, especially, again, what microbial communities are living there, that can help us understand what's happening in outer space. So even though we were on the ocean, NASA's got an interest in learning what we're learning from the deep sea. Exactly. Right.
0: It's like Europa, right? We're looking at um, it has these big oceans. We're seeing are there any like Hydrothermal vents there is there potential life there. We're looking um, for organic molecules in other places. It's it's all. I, I love earth science because it's so interdisciplinary and like everything affects everything else. For example, you have climate change affecting like AMOC, right? Then you have um, all these other like the, the the sea ice albedo effect. There's Lots of things that um, all touch
1: each other. So that's that's one of the reasons why I love earth science. And there's so much that we don't know about our own planet. This is the right. thing. We We've done pretty good learning about land, but our ocean, maybe we know 20% of what's down there and have explored it. And we haven't even mapped all of our own ocean. We've mapped the surface of the moon. We've mapped the surface of Mars. We have not mapped planet Earth. (laughs) We (laughs) are missing a significant part. And the ocean covers 71% of our planet. And yeah, over 90% of the water on our planet is contained in the ocean. And so there are so many questions and so much to learn. And some of that learning you do need to do on a on a ship you need to go out and collect that material but we're also getting better using satellites and i don't know if you've seen sail drone technology that's out there now where um, they're the unmanned vehicles that yeah. can actually sail into a hurricane like oh, we, wow. we've had those hurricane hunters that can fly into hurricanes but what happens at the ocean surface when a hurricane goes overhead and we have now have the technology to send these, uh, these unmanned vehicles into hurricanes to be able to collect data and to understand and collect video of what it's like to be inside a hurricane. So we are advancing our technology and it's super exciting that hopefully we're going to be moving much further, much faster in learning more about our ocean. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and going back to like the, the,
0: um, superheated fluids, right? I know there's serpent, serpentinite that forms when you have like basalt and then Um, right and I'm very curious like I didn't know that like microbes live in rocks but I guess it makes sense because microbes are very extreme they live anywhere (laughs) so yeah I would love to to hear more about like how how do microbes live in the rocks like um what kind of rocks do they need to live in and all that stuff. So, okay. yeah. And
1: I wish I could tell you more about that, but we're still trying to figure that out. Exactly, <laughs> so, yeah. <I> figured. <laughs> uh, and and it's interesting because when you're on the ship for two months, as soon as that core comes up and, and what I love about Jody's resolution is that it's an international group of scientists. It's not just US scientists. And so Wonderful. I was with people from Japan and China and South Korea and Germany and New Zealand and the UK wow. and we're all there together all geeking out over <laughs> these fresh cores that are coming up from the ocean floor, and we immediately start our work. But that microbiology work isn't completed on the ship, even though we start some of those analyses. Mm-hmm. It's because the ship is not a clean environment. You really need a clean lab so you don't have contamination going on. Yeah, uh, and you don't so- doubt, like, microbes on your fingers in the rocks, maybe, and then... Right, and the the cores have just gotten to Texas A&M University. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I'm actually going down to Texas A&M to do some more analyses and scientists are going into collecting some more samples. So some of the work does need to be done on land. So it's gonna take us about, we're estimating five years to be able to do all the analyses and to work collaboratively to, to really extract as much info as we can out of these materials that we just collected. So stay tuned, we will have an answer for you. I just don't have it from this expedition just yet.
0: Yeah, I love how two months of just field work can turn into a whole five year of lab work, data, um, analysis and all that stuff. Yes,
1: it can turn into a career of work, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely
0: amazing. I guess um another another kind of aspect of this is your the work you did with the, the international crew. Um I recently just had an experience where I went to the International Earth Science Olympiad. Um there's people ah. from like Italy, um like it, literally it's international, right? So you've got Japan, China, um, we had people in Mexico and, and more places, and we got to work with them to work on like an earth systems presentation, um, which is a very cool opportunity. Like you said, you were geeking out. So were we. <laughs> it, it happened like a
1: couple of weeks ago. So, and it, and it's fun too, not just to be able to talk about science with different people, but to talk about other things too. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm a huge basketball fan. And one of the Japanese scientists is a Los Angeles Lakers fan. And so we're two complete different strangers and Yeah, but we get together and we could talk about basketball. (laughs) And and you talk about, uh, I was trying to explain what a a fluff and utter sandwich is. I don't know if you've seen that, you know, that's marshmallow and peanut butter put together. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But even just marshmallow fluff, Some of my Uh international colleagues, like, what do you mean fluff? What is that? And (laughs) so, you know, explaining, talking about different foods, different parts of our cultures. I, those conversations were just so much fun. Uh, And we found ways to have fun on the ship too. And I think that's an important part for everyone to realize that scientists, yes, uh, take their research seriously. We're very passionate about learning about the planet, but we also just enjoy conversations and sharing music with each other. We had a uh, national paper airplane day occurred when I was on the ship. And so we had a contest who could build the best paper airplane and fly it the furthest. And so <laughs> um, one of our scientists was improving his yo-yo technique on the ship. Another one brought a ukulele to learn how to play the ukulele. So oh, wow. uh, we talked about, do you put your ketchup on your French fries or next to your French fries? And <laughs> it was, interesting. It's, so it, it was very interesting. So uh all those little conversations I think really help us also uh maybe be more ready even to work at a, and collaborate at an international level. Again, you don't get that opportunity very often, Um, but when you're out to sea, I mean, you're on the high seas. And so you're just working together. you all have the same mission and it's important to have fun while you're doing the science too. I mean, I I don't know if you can tell, but I really love being a scientist. I really love being, I love being an educator and that's the most important part of all too. Just making sure that you have fun uh, doing what you're doing.
0: Yeah, science is not just about like the geology. It's also about like the communication and the and the connections you make with other people. It's the community. Absolutely. The community. I will say I I when I I usually don't eat ketchup with fries, but when I do, I put it on the side.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So that was the majority of people on the shift, except we had one scientist from Cape Town Uh, that sailed with us and he was the only one that put ketchup on fries and that guy got picked down all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he put ketchup on fries. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, absolutely. I can definitely tell you're so passionate about the science you do. And I wanted to ask you, like, how and when did you get interested in science um, and earth science and marine um, marine geology in particular?
1: Yeah, it's hard to pin that down exactly when that aha moment was. I know when I went through uh, elementary school, middle school, I was not into science at all. And and I think it's just because I didn't know any scientists. You know, At the time we didn't have opportunities to Zoom with other people. Even when you went to museums, you never had a chance to meet a scientist. You just toured like the dinosaurs in the exhibit hall or something. Mm-hmm. So there was just nothing that excited me about looking at photos in a book and reading about science. So a lot of things were not hands-on as much as they are nowadays. And it really was a chemistry teacher I had in high school, Mrs. DeThomas in the 11th grade, who just made chemistry so exciting and really had me doing so well in chemistry too. And, And she, I think was also the very first teacher that told me, you have what it takes. She's like, you should just go for it. She's, I'm here for you. And to have a teacher tell you that you've got the smarts to be able to do something and that they believe in you, that hadn't happened to me before. And so that's something I certainly make sure I do for my students now too, just to encourage them.
0: Yeah. And
1: uh, and so I actually thought I wanted to be a chemical engineering major in college. And that's what I went to college for. And that lasted one semester because <laughs> <laughs> I had organic chemistry my first semester of freshman oh, year. Wow. And, and that was not that was not good. So uh, so yeah. I actually then decided well, that I, I can't do science, obviously. And I thought I'd be a business major. And so I enrolled in management 101. And I was like, oh, this is. Boring, and, and, and not that business is bad, it just wasn't for me. It just wasn't something that got me excited. And so I said, no, I think I really do want to be a scientist. So the next semester, I took biology, but every lab in biology was a dissection. We were always cutting something up. And I just, that, I just did not get into things that were bleeding or breathing. It just didn't do it for me either. And so now it comes to second semester sophomore year of college, and that's when that's the deadline of when you have to choose a major, and I was just I didn't know what to do, and one of my good friends had taken a physical geology course so she was a psychology major but she had taken this course because she needed to take a science credit for Mm -hmm. general education. (laughs) And she really liked it. And she said, hey, maybe you'll like this. And so I enrolled in it and yes, that clicked with me. And it was just, I never knew you could learn so much about volcanoes and glaciers and deserts and everything. Yeah. And we had field trips, we went out in the field and we took measurements of things. And it was just, that was the major for me doing geology. And then I, as I was refining my interest, it was really about learning more about the ocean and wanting to do oceanography, which we didn't have any classes in that at my undergraduate institution. I went to Bucknell University for my undergrad. Oh, wow. And so I needed to go, so I needed to go to graduate school to be able to get more of that discipline knowledge under my belt and ended up going to University of Miami, the rosensteel School in, in Florida for my PhD in marine geology and geophysics and have no regrets. It has all worked out amazingly well. Having uh, internships as an undergraduate with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, really helped me too. And I continue those NOAA connections today and have been out to sea with NOAA as well. Oh, that's
0: been very cool.
1: Yeah, going out on Noah's ships uh, ha- has been amazing too. So uh, so I love that I get to teach and I still have an opportunity once in a while to get out to sea uh, and work with some amazing people. So it's just been an incredible balance. I will say though, also with the, the teaching part, did not wanna teach ever, I think until my last semester of graduate school. So, because I was so intimidated by speaking, speaking in front of other people, and I think I just didn't have the confidence in myself that I could teach someone something and that they would learn, actually learn from me. <laughs> and and when I was in graduate school, I was a teaching assistant for the undergraduate geology program for my first four years. And that is where I was able to build the confidence and the experience. And so when I was finishing graduate school, I was like, well, do I want to do a full-time research career or do I want to do teaching and also do some research? And and uh, So I taught for two years. I took a two-year position first in Virginia and found out, yeah, I want to do this. I want to work with students. I want to supervise undergraduate research projects. I want to do my own research. And uh, and so yep, the rest is here I am. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And like, I'm assuming you got over that um, that mindset that you were not uh, going to help people learn when you were the teaching assistant, right? And you were able to actually have some impact.
1: So yeah, well, it was was a really hard start to graduate school. Mine was so different than normal because I started in August of 1992. Mm -hmm. I moved to Miami, Florida the week before Hurricane Andrew hit. So my first day of graduate school orientation, we, everyone was told to get out, just like leave because (laughs) Andrew was on its way. And so, Uh, Missed the whole week of orientation because myself and another new graduate student, we drove up to University of Florida and hung out there for a week until we could get back to Miami and so dealing with the hurricane recovery while you're trying to start graduate school and you know here I am I'm from the northeast and mid Atlantic states and I'm now in Miami, which is a completely different (laughs) geographic part of the country. Uh, so there was a lot that was going on that I was trying to figure out and balance when I started graduate school, but uh, but I'm a pretty stubborn person. Mm-hmm. And again, I was pretty passionate about wanting to do marine geology, and so I, I stuck with it.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's That stubbornness is always needed. We, we need that. <laughs>
1: Sometimes, yeah. And then it's also helpful to have other people too. What I love now is that it's so easy to be able to message people on your phone or to jump into a quick Zoom call. I love being able to have friends and colleagues that I can mentor or I can just have a quick chat with. Uh, ha- though those lines of communications, um, it's just getting easier and easier to stay connected with people. And having that support network, again, no matter what your career stage, is just so helpful and so rewarding. Oh, yeah, for sure. Again,
0: that community, like we talked about earlier. Um, Absolutely. It's like like I like I mentioned I did that IESO thing but before that there was this um United States Earth Science Olympiad so where they actually chose the team to go to the international competition and at that United States Earth Science Olympiad we have like a Discord server where all of us are talking about like rocks we like you guys had um a debate about where to, where to put your ketchup we had debates if um like <laughs> if if um uh, some rocks were, like, blue or green, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, so it was definitely an experience, um, I think we were talking about the turquoise, right, so, yeah, (laughs) was it blue or was it green? It was one of, like, the test questions we had, (laughs) just to, nice, (laughs) yeah, so, um, to like earlier, you mentioned that one of your teachers was the one who helped you get into that science field. And that's what you're doing right now, right? With this podcast, you're and just your teaching, you're helping other people um, hear the thing they need to hear, which is you can do science, go for it, um, or whatever
1: else. And and that's the thing, or whatever else, you can do science journalism, you can do science and art. So I have one student right now who wants a career in doing natural disaster art, so wants to combine his passion with art, but with his passion also for weather events. Mm -hmm. And so working with him, you know, I'm kind of the, his science coach, if you will, on this side. Uh, I've worked with students that are great at communications and I'm like, but they, they're, they like science, but uh, do not want to spend the time with the math and all the other science courses, and but they have a passion for it. I'm like, okay, well, then we can we don't have to do a full science degree. We could do a minor in environmental inquiry, or we could earn a certificate in earth sustainability so that you do have some credentials and that you've got some basics of science. But let's map that on to your skills and your talents in communication and communication and get you started in a career that way. Because there are jobs in these interdisciplinary fields. And I feel that part of my role is being a guide on the side for students to be able to find and identify where those places are and where they can fit in.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely necessary that you do that because as students, we don't know where what, what type of um, opportunities are event are, are available in these big big fields? But it's good to hear that you can literally do anything. You can. You absolutely can. So, what advice would you give to young underrepresented uh, students or people who are um, trying to learn and and and
1: work towards learning about environmental science? So there, I mean, there's just so much you can do, right? So there's things you can do on your own, which is uh. I hate to say search the internet, but look for organizations, there's a lot of organizations uh, that also focus on helping those um, that may not be very visible and very present in fields, but are creating resources and support networks, uh, and and having opportunities. Uh, One of my colleagues is very active in the black and marine science group. Uh, so, for example, there's, there are way, organizations and ways to get involved, and that's where I would say kind of look for established organizations that are out there that are offering programming. Many of them are offering mentoring programmings or sessions for students so you can learn about what's happening.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Also, connect with your teachers you know, or your instructors, whatever, whatever grade level you're at. Mm-hmm. Uh, tap into their knowledge and their expertise, and if they don't have that specific knowledge, Odds are they're going to know someone they can put you in touch with, right. so uh, so don't underestimate how big our networks are, <laughs> and and I think students sometimes just see us in front of the classroom and don't realize you know uh, again I was just on the ship and I share that those stories with my students but I do know people in different places that are doing different things and can arrange a Zoom conversation or something where students can hear more. And I would say students should also be eager uh, if they again have the opportunity to participate in undergraduate research opportunities, internships, uh, semester away programs, and it doesn't have to be study abroad. Like when I was an undergrad, I spent a semester at, in Woods Hole, Massachusetts Mm-hmm. So at the Marine Biological Laboratory, I took coursework for fall semester of my junior year there. So it was amazing to be at that facility to be able to, to take those courses and to learn from those scientists. Right. And I so I like to tell students that there are doors that open for you, whether you open that door or a faculty member or a staff person is opening doors and part of it is having the courage to go through that door and take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah. So just be aware of those doors that are in front of you uh, and take advantage of them.
0: Yeah, that's really great advice because um, you never know when those doors are going to appear again. So go straight through and take
1: full advantage of them. And and don't hesitate to ask for help along the way. Of course, uh, yeah. It's not where he, you should feel like you already are a master at something. We all need to ask for help. We all need to ask questions, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And and um, moving a little bit towards like the science communication, um, talking to the public and communicating uh, science not not in like a, a classroom setting, but more like um, you know at their homes, like homeowners that have to deal with um things like soil erosion or or other other um, uh, ecological like changes that may be happening with climate change, but there are some people who don't believe climate change is occurring, right? They don't think it's man-made, they think it's just like the natural cycle. Um, so if you had a chance to talk to someone who had that mindset, what would you
1: try to tell them? I I would at first try to channel my inner Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Have you heard of Dr. Hayhoe before? I have not, but please. So she has an excellent Ted talk and I strongly encourage you to watch her Ted talk. And she says the number one thing all of us can do about climate change is to talk about it. Uh And that's the first step is just having conversation. If you don't talk about it at all, then change is aren't going to happen and no one's going to be educated and move forward from there. Uh, But what I love about her TED talk is she talks about what you and I already mentioned about knowing who your audience is and knowing who that community is and what are the topics of interest to them. So you mentioned something about soil and soil erosion and maybe that's impacting the foundation of someone's house. And so you would want to make that conversation relevant to them and bring in not just the, some local examples, but also solutions too. Mm-hmm. So that's an important part because as I mentioned, I teach an entire course on climate change and it's really hard for the course not to come across as doom and gloom when you look at the science. And so I'm always trying to show students that there are solutions that are there too. We know about these solutions and these solutions are expanding and growing. Organizations like Project Drawdown that are really getting into the research Mm -hmm. of these climate solutions. And and then helping students, again, find their voice and being able to share what those solutions are, having those conversations, not leading with the data, as I mentioned before.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: But sure. Really, really taking advantage of knowing who your audience is, finding what's relevant and what matters to them, and then not shying away from speaking about it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that like everybody's backgrounds also plays a role in um uh how you're gonna talk to someone. Um, communication, like like you said, know your audience is one of the biggest things that um that 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 is needed to to understand how to communicate with somebody else. Um, and just to close our wonderful conversation off, um, uh, are there any like other interesting experiences that you would like to share from your career or when you're working on research? Oh my
1: goodness, So. <laughs> I've had a lot of experiences uh, in different places and doing different research projects. Again, I have tried in my career to take advantage of those open door opportunities. Mm -hmm. And even if it's something that, didn't directly relate to my goal of being an oceanographer. I did a geophysics survey in Baja, California through NASA JPL when I was in graduate school, just again, to have some field experience. We were monitoring an area to see if there were small earthquakes occurring or if the energy was building up for there to be a major earthquake. And I don't do earthquake science, but wow, that experience was incredible. So yeah, I have some stories (laughs) that's for sure. And I, I mean, I've been to Alaska. I've been to Hawaii. I, I like know, Hawaii. to travel to go to different places and learn about the geology. It's hard for me to go on a true vacation because I'm always looking at the environment around me and trying to learn about oh what's my, happening.
0: And- <laughs> I went to New York to visit my brother recently and we went to Central Park and we saw these like metamorphic rocks there. There was like Manhattan schist. I, I like... I bring a tiny little chunk home, it was, it was tiny, <laughs> but I needed it, it was so, there was so
1: much geology there, it was very cool to look at. And so I, I would say, uh, definitely, I mean, I've loved going to national parks too, I'd love going to field seminars in other nations, there's just so much to learn, and so I, yeah, I always, again, encourage my students and everyone, we I mean, just keep asking questions, and always have that desire to learn, I hope, No student or adult ever loses that excitement and desire to learn because it's in that learning and in that investigation that we can address challenges that we have and find solutions to them, too.
0: Yeah, exactly. Are there any like significant experiences that you've had, maybe um, anything funny or I don't know anything life changing?
1: Oh well, besides evacuating for hurricane Andrew,
0: <laughs> oh my <yeah>, god <laughs> there, that, there was
1: that, and then uh, Hurricane Aaron came and we had to evacuate for that. And then Tropical Storm Gordon came twice because it went across the state of Florida, and then went back across the state of Florida. So after six years in Miami and dealing with all those hurricanes, I was I said, I'm moving back to the northeast. Give me a good old nor'easter any day. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was uh that was probably maybe the most significant. Experience I've had, but being able to again get these opportunities to go out to sea. Uh, I remember going to Iceland and being able to go to a plate tectonic boundary where you can put one foot on right. the Eurasian yeah. plate and one foot on the North American plate. That's you know, that's so like cool. a geology geeky kind of thing. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: So uh, but one of the things I'm really excited about is how the the audiences are getting interested in my quilting and the telling of science stories. So I have an exhibit coming up at Jenkins Arboretum next month where my oh, wow. quilts are going to go on display. Um, they've been on display down in Louisiana. I have a collection that's called Stitching Hope for the Louisiana Coast that talks about uh, stories of adaptation and resilience to oh, wow. the challenges faced in southern Louisiana and was able to display my quilts there. And so being able to talk to everyday people about science is probably the most. All of those combined are just super exciting for me.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm very glad that I was able to learn so much from you about about how you were how you were so like succinctly and nicely um, explaining science to people in a way that they can connect with it. And it's not just like eyes glossing over. It's mm-hmm. it's very interesting. Um, and lastly, if anyone would like to reach out to you, where can they do so?
1: Oh, absolutely. I am here to help anyone with any questions that they have. So the best way would be through my email address at Penn State. Mm-hmm. So it's my last name, G-U-E-R-T-I-N at psu.edu. Gotcha. I
0: will put it in the podcast description for anyone to Excellent. reach out to you absolutely speaking um with dr laura and i want to thank you so much dr g for joining me here and sharing your thoughts about um you know climate change education communication all these wonderful um, and numerous aspects of science and, and especially the community and i've really appreciated um learning from you today
1: and thank you very much yeah absolutely it's been wonderful to speak with you as well